Hello and welcome to the Parafly podcast brought to you by the Parafly Society. I'm I'm Esther and today I have here with me uh, as a guest Kath Berlinson. Very nice to have you here. Thank you very much for accepting our invitation, Kath, and welcome. Thank you, Esther. Thank you. Um, so Kath has, um, if I'm not mistaken, she has um, published, uh, well, you are a published writer and a poet. You have also worked for the stage, a TV, film and radio. You have won several awards, um, if I am... Um, if I can say that, and you have co-founded the Weir's uh, Sisters Theatre Company and, and you spent several years lecturing English and drama at the University of Southampton, right? Mm, that's that's have... correct, yeah, I've had a, um, I've had a, a quite an eclectic career, yes. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> and I love that. Just like, <laughs> it was so interesting to, to have you here today. Uh, you also have a PhD in Victorian poetry, and you have published a book on Christina Rossetti. Um, and now you, uh, you also founded in, was it in 2009, uh, the Authentic Artist, uh, Artist Collective, right? That's correct. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to tell us a little bit about that, uh, what is it about and the project and everything? Sure, maybe just briefly a, a chronology might be helpful here. So yes, I um, I was at Southampton University from 89 to 97. And during that time, I completed my PhD, which was on Christina Rossetti. It was supervised by Isabel Armstrong, uh, eminent Victorian scholar and Absolutely. wonderful person. And uh, and then I had always, in fact, my first degree was in drama and I had always been interested in theatre and performance and so on. So in the end, I, I decided to return to that and I gave up my lovely job at Southampton with my wonderful colleagues there and all job security and plunged into the <laughs> unknown. And I, yes, created a theatre company called The Weird Sisters with um, Alison Goldie, a dear friend and a creative partner. And we then trotted around the world making shows and touring and so on for uh, many years. More recently, in 2009, yes, I, I founded the Authentic Artists Collective, which is really an empowerment engine for artists from all different disciplinary backgrounds. So it's it's a collective. It grew out of a workshop program that I offer, which I offer three day authentic artist workshops. In fact, I've just done one this weekend. And I work with poets and writers and musicians and dancers and choreographers and all kinds of different artists. And the collective then works as a network for those artists, but it also is a production engine. So at the moment, I'm working on a production called When Mountains Meet, which is a fascinating story about how a musician uh, who was brought up by a single mother in Scotland found her Pakistani father in Pakistan and traveled there. So I'm working on that at the moment. So, yes, I have a very um, wide ranging kind of career. But but going back to Rossetti, I suppose that one of the key things that's significant is that after I left Southampton, I started in the in the early 2000s or that decade to do a lot of work with an organization called Youth Music Theatre UK. Mm-hmm. And that was really a wonderful laboratory for my own directing skills. I worked with some fabulous young people, many of whom are now in the theatre profession. 
And during that time, I did this adaptation of Goblin Market for the stage. And I think that's one mm. of the things that you wanted to ask me about today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this um, adaptation, um, it was first presented in the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Was is that actually, correct or, actually, or not? No. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> first presented, um, amazingly, it's almost uh, 20 years ago. It was first presented at the Lyric Theatre in Belfast. Oh. And mm -hmm. then two years later, we took the same production to the Edinburgh Fringe. So it was in the Edinburgh mm -hmm. Fringe at George Square Theatre in 2005. Mm -hmm. That was like a huge success, uh, right? The, this adaptation, what was kind of your, let's say, your role kind of behind this project? Okay. Uh, the libretto? Um... So, so I initiated the project partly because... Mm -hmm. When I started to work with Youth Music Theatre UK, which is now called British Youth Music Theatre, it has a different name now, mm -hmm. I realised that I was working with lots and lots of young women. You know, musical <laughs> theatre, there were a great deal more young women than young men mm -hmm. involved. And they were very, very talented and there were never enough roles for them. And I thought I had been sort of thinking about how would I take my work on Rossetti into a more theatrical environment. And originally I was actually thinking of making a show for myself. And then when I started working with these young women, I thought, why don't we do a, an adaptation of Goblin Market? Because, of course, it is about young women and their mm -hmm. negotiation and navigation of their of their lives, of their sexuality and so on. And it seemed an obvious kind of choice. And I had met a, a brilliant composer called Connor Mitchell, mm -hmm. who is now... Um, he founded and is now running the artistic director of the Belfast Ensemble. And they are doing extraordinary work and, and really getting a lot of accolades themselves. But at this point, Connor was a young 24 year old, relatively unknown composer. And I had worked with him in 2002 and thought that he would be the person to write the score. He was ambitious, he had great vision and he was musically extremely talented. So I took the idea to uh, John Bromwich, who was the producer of, of Youth Music Theatre UK. And we basically said, OK, we got the green light to go ahead. So then what I did was to start to go about thinking about how to adapt the poem for the stage. And the one of the first choices I made, Esther, was to think about the character of Jeannie because Jeannie is only mentioned in passing in Goblin Market, but it seemed to be, she seemed to offer some theatrical possibilities. So I definitely wanted to make Jeannie into not just somebody who's referred to in passing, but into a, a full character to be played by a, an actor on the stage. Obviously we were going to have Laura and Lizzie. And then the other thing that I wanted to bring in was a kind of narrative structure, which I drew from speaking likenesses. So Rossetti's short story or short story collection, but the actual, uh, the title story, Speaking Likenesses, which has this irascible aunt narrator character who is addressing young girl listeners in, in the short story. And it's a fascinating text, and it was one that I'd, I'd spent time writing on and researching on in my own work, in my academic work. And I was very interested, again, in having the aunt talking to 
two young listeners. And what I did was to set up a kind of structure where we would have the human world. So we would have the aunt telling the story of Laura and Lizzie and the goblins, talking to these two girls who I named Clara and Claire. I think I named them that. I might have drawn one of those names <laughs> from the, for a story. I can't remember now. It's a while ago for sure. But I basically set up a sort of parallel structure where Clara was a little bit like Laura, adventurous and and interested and curious. And Claire was much more conservative and, and kind of cautious and, and home loving. So I had this human world. And then obviously there's the kind of fairy tale, folktale world of Laura and Lizzie and the goblins. And then with the world of Jeannie, I had effectively a kind of transcendent world. So the world of the ghost. And Jeannie as the ghost could play the role of a certain kind of commentator on the action. And the conceit was that she couldn't be seen by Laura or Lizzie, but she could be that kind of harbinger of doom. <laughs> so, and also through Lizzie, through, through the character of Jeannie, we ended up towards the end of the, of the production with all of the young women in the cast and the cast was kind of 35. So we had these six female leads, Laura, Lizzie, Jeannie, the aunt, Clara and Claire. And then we had an ensemble, a goblin ensemble who were very, very physical and uh, a fabulous bunch of, of characters. At the end of the show, what we did was we had all of the young women come on in the same costume as Jeannie. And they did a kind of choral lament for all of the fallen women. Mm -hmm. So that notion of because one of the one of the things that Jeannie Jeannie had a big song which was called If I Had a Sister. And that sense of her isolation and that there was no one there to support her and that she was then kind of lost and and um unredeemed and so on whereas of course with Laura and Lizzie what we have is that act of of um courage on the part of Lizzie and then the redemption that comes through for Laura so the 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 fundamental structure of these three different worlds the human the folk fairy tale and the transcendental opened up all kinds of theatrical as well as musical and harmonic possibilities and that's what Connor then got to work with. And he began in the program notes, he talks about starting with the closest relationship between two notes. So the semitone as mm -hmm. effectively the relationship between Laura and Lizzie, two notes. And the other thing that he did was to say the point about the, the, mo the, the most obvious choice might be to make the goblin world kind of spooky and weird sounding and he did the sure. opposite so he went no the whole point is that it's about seduction it's about you know they sound so full of love you know they are they are uh working actually in the world of tonality and harmony and it, it's the it's the world of of the domestic that we that he then wrote as a much more atonal and discordant kind of world 
Wow, that's, that's very interesting. And that actually answers many of the questions I have here noted down. If I may ask, how was the process of adaptation? If well, because what you spoke, of course, a little bit about that. Uh, but how was the process of adaptation? Because as you said, this was uh, done by a young cast and probably probably the main target was also the main uh, audience would be also young people. So how do you adapt these uh, very ambiguous, um, so much open to interpretation and <laughs> this poem um, with all the levels of meanings you can find there for a young public? Well, I suppose we we... The cast, the youngest person in the cast, I think, was 13 and the oldest was 19. So they were not, you know, children. They were not tiny children. Mm -hmm. Um, There was, of course, within that age range, a great range of understanding of these things. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there was an interesting moment where I had taken from speaking likenesses the kind of unreliable narration that the aunt uses in that and the way that she plays with power so I was quite interested in in Rossetti generally and the and kind of indeterminacy and the indeterminacy of her structures in poems like Winter My Secret and, and so on, where she's playing with our expectations. And the aunt, it seems to me, in speaking likenesses, is from that same kind of world. And there's a point where in speaking likenesses, where the aunt is telling the story of the apple of discord. So she's telling a story about um about myth and then she she says to one of the girl the girls in the story um well you may ask your brothers about that they may tell you about that someday and she does this weird kind of refusal to talk about the issue but at the same time kind of drop this sort of carrot about what this is all to do with and I thought that was so fascinating so we we did actually use uh, those lines almost in the piece and one of the young girls in the one of the youngest girls in the cast you know was very interested in this and said so what does that mean and what does that mean so what i found that w- what was so fascinating and i think is also so interesting in terms of the way that this text has been consumed over the over the decades is that within my young cast from 13 to 19 they interpreted and understood the text very much in relation to where they were in their own understanding of the issues. Mm-hmm. So for the younger ones, it was more literal and it was more, okay, you know, there's goblins and there's fruit and there's, yeah. Whereas the kind of more allegorical and certainly the the layers of, the negotiation and navigation of of seduction, sexuality, and so on, were very much more pertinent, obviously, for those girls who were navigating puberty and and coming into their own arena of of sexual expression and and relationship. So that was just very interesting to me because, you know, we have got this text that's been consumed in so many different ways, that's been illustrated in so many different ways, from children's story to pornographic text, all of these things. So, and it felt like, again, it, the, what was wonderful about doing the adaptation was how much the poem still kept that that quality of mystery. And one of the key things that I did structurally is right at the very end where you've got that potentially slightly saccharine ending of Laura, you know, with the children and 
saying oh how, how wonderful Lizzie was and everything was I had these two children on the bed the two tiniest people in the cast were the children <laughs> and then the last thing that happens is that one of the children has an apple and bites into the apple and there's a closing cord so the notion of that temptation appetite seduction rolling on into the next generation was very um clearly sort of represented in in my version because i didn't want it to be just a neatly sewn up piece of narrative closure because i don't think that's really what's going on anyway even in in rossetti's own uh in rossetti's own text although it's pulling in that direction as well so so some of those ambiguities i think were um i i was doing my best to to try to keep those and then I wasn't particularly worried. I mean, I think we we went for it on the sensuality. You know, we had the two girls there. We had the whole scene between Laura and Lizzie. We had, um, uh, we actually had <laughs> kind of hollowed out peaches that were filled with yogurt. So in the scene where the goblins attack uh, Lizzie, she was actually physically kind of mauled and so on. Obviously it was done with, you know, lots of, control and choreography but when she comes home and she says to Laura you know never mind my bruises hug me kiss me suck my juices she was literally covered in this uh yogurt <laughs> which then <laughs> Laura played by a, a young woman called Tara Wilcox who's now a singer in a fabulous band called the Wandering Hearts she literally had to eat <laughs> the the or lick the yogurt from Lizzie's face so you know, obviously negotiating all of that, and navigating all of that, but there was there was there was no way that we could not have that moment of high drama in the piece. And uh, poor Tara, because you know you had yogurt, but you also had mixed up with bits of sort of sweat and stage makeup, and <laughs> so it was a yeah. bit gross. It was all a bit gross. But we did have Gary McCann, who's now a fantastically well-known, established opera designer was the designer on the production. He made these incredible sort of platters of sumptuous fruit and so on that were partly artificial, but partly also uh, real. So the whole thing had a, a very uh, a luscious look as well. It was a, it was a sumptuous kind of um, event, the whole thing. And uh, Heather Long did the costumes and uh, they were wonderful. So the aunt was on plaster as stilts. So the aunt was actually six foot four she was enormous in this great big victorian costume with, with this long 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 skirt she could barely walk but <laughs> but she didn't really have to move very much but she was this hugely imposing larger than life figure so we played with scale and we played with kind of dream state and um yeah i could talk about it for ages actually <laughs> that's what we're here for but one um, other thing I wanted to just say about the adaptation was I really obviously wanted to stay as true to the text as I could I wanted to work with the the speaking likenesses things and some of that sort of playful notion uh and so some of the things that some of the things that we did you know we took uh the list of fruits for example that's pretty much intact there's a there's a um, a whole song um, where we took that that list of metaphors that happen around Lizzie um, 
like Lily in a Flood, like a vessel at the launch. Um, that, that, those lines are about Laura, but you know, all those Leica, 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 Leica. And we use those, um, that list of similes in a song called Caged Thing Freed. And the fun thing then was actually because if you're working in song, you also need to work within particular kinds of rhyme structures and so on. So then to to try to get something that would keep the spirit of Rossetti's language and the, the cadences, the rhythms and so on, and also then work with those in a way that would satisfy the demands of song structure uh, was, was a whole new area for me, a whole new challenge. I'd never done anything like that before and it was wonderful to work with Connor. Um, so fundamentally, yes, I did the libretto, but sometimes he had um, input on those things as well because he came from a songwriting and composing background. So we 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 co um, collaborated on those things too. Mm -hmm. And that begins me to to ask you that like, uh, for the libretto, what the lyrics of the songs? Uh, did you take um, Christina Rossetti's own poems? Did you try to stick to those? Did you bring something new? Did you have to bring something new or? Yeah, it's a completely, it's a real mixture. So so. Mm -hmm. For example, there's a there's a song called Early Birds, which is sung by Lizzie when Laura is sick. So when she's, you know, when Lizzie's really uncertain about whether Laura is going to recover, having had the reaction to the, the fruit when she takes it from Lizzie's uh, skin. And Early Birds is a ballad that is sung by Lizzie and it is entirely um, my own words. Or is that true? There may be, I'd have to look at it in detail now, there may be fragments, but fundamentally there I took the liberty and I, I went, you know, off on my own track because there wasn't very much there and it felt like a dramatic thing. It yeah. felt like it needed, you know, the, the dramatic stu structure needed a song at that point and it needed Lizzie to be able to articulate the emotional state that she was in so it's um and Connor wrote a, a beautiful tune for it so that's at one end of the scale and then as I say at the other end we really tried to keep as much as we could um so we've got things like you know one has a cat's face one um, whisks a tail <laughs> one like a rat's face one uh, one like a snail those those things are all in there but they're, of course they're sung and then the, because we had these young people who were in this production were auditioned nationally. So they were really good singers and really good movers. I, I'd, I'd uh, been very interested in movement and physical theater. And I'd cast young people who were not only good singers, but also improvisers, movers, dancers. So it was a, it was a, a physical production. The ensemble were very um, individually kind of um, created. They, they each had their own name, they had their own identity, they had their own centre of gravity, they had their own, all kinds of ways in which we work with them physically. And then the, the choral aspect of it, the four-part harmony aspect that Connor made, 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 made it, it's almost like, he called it a chamber opera. So it's, it's more of pushing towards that, that world than, than more conventional kind of musical theatre sound. It had a 13-piece orchestra, again, of young players. And uh, it's a beautiful score. It has kind of great swooping melodies, and then it has also these 
these discordant elements in it as well. So, so yeah, I, I would say then in terms of that process of moving from a real honouring of Rossetti's text and also what was interesting was, of course, the, the demands of the of the theatrical structure and the musical structure and what that dictated. So actually there's a big spread of direct quotation through to kind of some paraphrase elements and then some entirely new content. So like Jeannie's song, obviously Jeannie doesn't say mm-hmm. anything in the poem. So we've got we've yeah. got a whole thing about um, uh, Jeannie's, Jeannie sings two songs in, in the show and the first one, she starts by saying, I was always, always told, always, always told not to venture in the woods, not to venture in the glen for fear of goblin merchant men. But I met them in the moonlight and they haunted me and I tasted things and they courted me and I tasted things I've never done before. I took their gifts. I ate their fruit. And all I knew was a thing I wanted most. I wanted more. But ever in the moonlight, I pined and pined, but ever in the moonlight, I wailed and screamed and cried deaf to that goblin cry. So we set up at the beginning through Jeannie that fundamental parallel about or that fundamental problem about the goblins and, you know, the seduction and the abandonment and then the, the fact that she couldn't see them anymore. And then her other big song, as I mentioned before, is if I had a sister, I'd be saved, not to lie in a shameful, shameful grave. So her kind of longing and pining for that sort of solidarity that that Lizzie offers Laura. And I was uh, really interested when you said that um, you got, um, what well, you retain the, the image um, of Laura uh, kind of like sucking through um, Lizzie's uh, face to get the, the joggers in this case. <laughs> it's, that was like, um, I was really impressed by that because I mean, like I know from, from other different productions, adaptations on Goblin Market, which have uh, kind of distance themselves from at least from that um kind of very physical very sensual uh image so they have distance themselves for that and they have uh maybe not directly just um eliminate uh this scene but the uh they have done it differently so it's not to kind of to bring this um this aspect so i'm surprised to, to hear that you actually decided to to keep it Oh, yeah, we totally went for it. <laughs> we totally went for it. I mean, you know, the reason that I was interested in working on Goblin Market in the first place in, in my studies on Rossetti was, you know, it was one of the most erotic poems in all of Victorian poetry. So I was always drawn to that. I was I found that, you know, fascinating, the whole issue of appetite. And it tied in with a lot of other work that was going on at that point in feminist criticism around um, desire and appetite and so on and how that's framed in in 19th century texts and uh, yeah there was absolutely no way that we were not going to really really go for it and and the you know it's still interesting isn't it because it still opens up signifiers I mean what it's interesting when you do something like that that is that graphic on stage it potentially concretizes a certain kind of meaning that is more fluid within the text because when you've got somebody there who is literally licking yoga off the face of her sister, you know, that is a different kind of thing. And it's interesting that in a strange way, it 
having seen what Lizzie endured, because also it was a very, very physical scene, you know, they really did go yes. for it, smearing her all over. And, you know, they the, the young people, we did a lot of work on the on physicality. So they were very comfortable with each other and each, each other's bodies. So they were really entwined. And, and, you know, when you see Lizzie go through this and then kind of this assault and then come back to her sister and say, you know, here I am, you know, make much of me. Um, and of course, then you actually see Laura going, what, what have you done? What have you done for me? And then look, and then Lizzie going, come on, come on, come on, you know, and see them come together with this, you know, huge, great flourish of the orchestra and everything. Um, it's a, it, it's a fascinating moment and it's, but it's, but it interestingly seemed to bring forth the, the 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 power of the self sacrifice more than the erotic, but that wasn't because we didn't go for it on the on the sensual animal, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just very interesting when you put something on the stage. You know, it has a there's a materiality and density and so on that you're showing something in a very different way than it, than when it's just a word on a page. Yeah. But yeah, we, we really did. Um, we really did go for it. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, the whole thing is, um, you know, taste them and try the whole delicious list at the beginning. The teenagers were very aware of the of the sensuality of those those things. And, you know, we played with with that quite openly. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think that was Connor and I were both perfectly comfortable with that. And we weren't. I don't even know, Esther, you know, it's interesting because the climate has changed so much. It's nearly 20 years ago. And I don't even know now whether we would be able to do what we did quite mm. as easily. Um, you know, we, we were working very, very physically close. Now we're in a post-pandemic world. People's relationship to physicality and physical space is different um, and, and proximity. And that, you know, there are so many conditions actually that have, have changed. I'm it's very interesting to think about whether we could even do that production again, but, but yeah, we certainly didn't avoid, we didn't avoid mm -hmm. the, um, the sensual side of it in any way. You said this was a very physical production and even very sensual, even if we're talking about young people uh, portraying this adaptation. So yeah, it would be really interesting to see because I don't, I don't know why it's that either. I'm not an expert um, in theater, so I don't know that much, and I don't know how it's uh, how is it going on, what is going on in the UK right now. But uh, talking from my from, from what I know, I don't know if this kind of production, as you said before, uh, would be possible as you did it uh, back then, like right now. Because I don't know, because you're still uh, you're still working in theater. So have you seen like after the pandemics that there this um there's been a change uh in the way things are being done in the physicality of things or um well I think that there are so many things that have changed. I think the um you know young people suffered a great deal during the pandemic mm. and I, I'm not I haven't been working in, in youth theatre for many years now. Um but my speculation would be uh, and from what I've heard from other people who are working in that world that you know young people went through a very very difficult time 
young people are on you know the the levels of anxiety and and um mental health issues are very very um high or the yeah of problems with mental health and so on um the whole world around touch contact uh intimacy coordination all kinds of you know things that have been that are that are now kind of in the field of how you work with bodies in in space there's it's very very different than it was in 2003 so i don't know is the answer because i'm not in the room with young people and i can't tell you and i think under certain circumstances you know if you did the right thing and i think you know one of the amazing things when you're working with a company like youth music theater uk as it was then British Youth Music Theatre as it is now, is that when these young people get together, they are meeting, as it were, almost like their own tribe. They're meeting their people. They're not the weird one who likes doing drama anymore because they're all the weird ones who like doing drama and singing and dancing and doing all those things. So it's a hugely bonding experience and it's residential. So they're talking all night to each other and, you know, sharing, you know, being teenagers together. And then they're working incredibly hard all day. So it's a super bonding kind of experience for them. And, and of course, then, you know, we had very careful um, child protection and pastoral care mm-hmm. to make sure that everything was above board in relation to all of those things and those potential dangers of that, that situation. But, but there's also a kind of real strength and, and, uh, and bonding that you certainly you wouldn't get if you walked in and tried to do a production in the school, you know it would be a really, really different kind of context because you're working together for hours and you can do lots of physical things and you can do lots of trust exercises and lots of work around boundaries and, you know, build up slowly so that you can start to get into much more physically um, adventurous work. And that's what we did. So it might be possible to do it today, (laughs) but I don't know. (laughs) Okay, thank you. And... uh, Well, of course, going back to to your adaptation in Google Market... From what I get from you, what you were saying, you try to um, to keep it what well, to um, kind of portray uh, the ambiguity, uh, yeah, the openness interpretation in uh, Rossetti's poem, and and I guess maybe trying not to uh, force a certain interpretation or a, c- a certain take on the, even though it's kind of difficult because of course then you have the physical like the real thing you just seeing it with your own eyes is different than reading uh Rossetti's words but I guess you were trying not to impose a certain maybe a, uh interpretation on the poem how difficult was that for you because I don't know do, probably what you've done your PhD in uh in Rossetti so you know how many interpretations we have how many scholarly work how many articles are still being written about about poem so how difficult was it to get, you know, to know that those things existed, but still try not to impose a certain reading on the poem, maybe? You know, the fundamental responsibility in theatre is you've got to tell the story. Mm-hmm. The choices that I made were about how to tell the story and at the same time to be opening up some of the issues that I'd been interested in my research. So things like the unreliable narration of the aunt or the not just unreliable, but actually manipulative and kind of interesting, the whole relationship of of women and power 
in relation to certain kinds of narrative strategies, the way that the aunt withholds information deliberately um, and reveals information and 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 it is at the same time telling this extraordinary story to these girls and at the same time saying, get on with your knitting. So imposing certain kinds of rigid aspects of socialization of girl children at the same time as pulling in another direction towards the imagination and telling the story about uh, about you know these these girls and and you know this story that will not be contained even if the aunt wants it to be and that's so I suppose I was I was always working with in a sense and influenced by my own research interests so I was interested in the issue of sensuality and sexuality and the navigation of that. I was interested in um, this, uh, the, 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 the way in which it does sit within a kind of Victorian narrative around the fallen woman. I was interested in uh, these kind of strange and more grotesque aspects that we have with the, with the aunt and with the speaking likenesses stories where it feels like the, that some of the ways in which these energies are kind of leaking out, they're, they're not containable. And I don't think, I think what, that's one of the things that I love about Goblin Market is it's, is it's so open to all of these different readings. And again, I think it comes back to that thing I was saying before, Esther, about, you know, there is a certain thing when you put a story on a stage and you've got real human beings playing real characters, it does change it. Um, but what I tried to do was to just to keep pulling apart and keep opening the questions and keep allowing uh, some of these some of these things. And I don't know whether you know, the parents of one of the kids who came to see the show are going to be interested in issues of unreliable narration. You know, probably not. But they were there in, in the text that, that I wrote. So um, I wasn't particularly worried about. Or obviously, I was very aware of that kind of the way in which the text is is open to all those range of possibilities and we did talk about that as much as I could with the cast you know we talked about all those different things and the, about what the goblins represented and the different ways in which they've been interpreted and so I mean I don't know what's been happening in the last when did I leave 97 I don't really know what's been happening since then in Rosetti criticism but I'm sure the poem continues to attract lots of um lots of interest and that sense of 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 it continuing to be a text that can be consumed in all of these different kinds of ways. That's why that's why it continues to fascinate. I think. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, have I? I don't know whether it's useful to. I don't know whether have I have I sent you any photographs of the production. Have you seen any photographs? Uh, from the original production, I'm afraid yes, a couple of them, but uh, like uh, some things that I have seen online, but it's not Do you very know easy. About- do you know mm-hmm. about the work um, of Mary Arsenal, who's um, at the University yes. of Ottawa? Okay, so Mary's, I sent Mary quite a lot of, because um, Mary and I were kind of Rossetti scholars, you know, at this, in the same kind of world and um, at the time, and, and and Mary got in touch recently. So she's actually got things like the original program and um, uh, various photographs, images, um, music, and so on from this production, if that's of interest, because I know she's building up this archive of, of uh of stuff so i'm sure you know more about that than i do but it is uh there is lots of stuff there and if you wanted to see if you wanted me to send you any more i'm quite happy to uh send you some more images and things so you get a bit yeah, more of a flavor of what it that would be lovely <laughs> thank um, you very much <laughs> yeah 
Um, just to wrap it out, to wrap uh, this whole conversation, because, I mean, we could be here for ages <laughs> talking about this, absolutely. Um, so when you are, I don't know, for example, like um, for the, um, let's talk about like the uh, costumes, makeup, all the physical thing, uh, physicality of the, uh, the theater production. Uh, did you um, conceive that or did you take, I don't know, or whoever was in charge, uh, did you ever consider the illustrations that, or at least like the most uh, well-known illustrations made uh, for uh, Rossetti's um, Goblin Market, or did you try to kind of like, yeah, stay away from that and bring your own vision? Well, so when you're working in theatre, you know, you have a creative team. So um, I mentioned the designer, Gary McCann. So that conversation was a conversation between me and Gary. And it was, it was, I came with a certain set of ideas and Gary came back with a, with a certain set of very different kinds of ideas. And we had some practical implications, like we had to get a 13 piece orchestra on the stage. And we also had a cast of 35, so that's a lot of people. And what Gary did was he took elements of, of um, Victorian influence. So he took, kind of William Morris swirls, let's say, some of the kind of, um, and he turned these into flats so that we would have different kind of ramps and walkways and places and so on. So uh, so we had a kind of world of foliage, of wild um, in, Morris influenced, uh, but, on, but solid on, on flats. Um, we had a, a cracked moon, um, with the face of, um, oh, I always forget this. I'm not going to be able to remember what this is. I might have to send you a note about this. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then, and then we were talking about this thing about having the aunt. So the aunt was on these plasters still. So she was a, a oversized, superhuman. So slightly, again, that Alice in Wonderland, Lewis Carroll kind of world of, of things being too big or too small and the piece of set. So she was sitting on effectively a kind of almost like a bench seat. But again, it had this huge back because she was so tall. It had to be enormous. So the piece of furniture was vast. And that was on one side of the stage. And, and then the other side of the stage, we had this very kind of uh, almost like the the way that Heather Long designed the costumes for Laura and Lizzie, they were almost like um, the kind of image of a sort of Heidi character, if you if you like. They had you know very kind of um, almost like little peasant kind of um, crisscrossy bodices and longer skirts, and they looked like they came from a kind of German fairy tale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they had a bed, you know, their set was basically the bed so that when they do golden head by golden head and so on, you know, that that was where they lay. And then all the goblins, we had a whole dream sequence where the goblins got underneath the bed and then lifted Laura up and carried her around and so on. So there was this, there were these three areas. Again, there was, you know, the domestic area. There was this strangely surreal world of the aunt. And then behind that were the, were these William Morris inspired um, flats and uh, this beautiful kind of cracked moon. Um, so, so, you know, these conversations, it, 
these conversations happen in between, you know, several different creative artists. So Heather's ideas about costume, Gary's ideas about set, and my ideas about the conception of the piece. And then, you know, theatre is about collaboration. So, so the different influences, but certainly Gary was drawing on a lot of different 19th century sources, but not, I would say, specifically on the illustrative history of the poem itself. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. And last question for today, because I don't want to tire too much, but uh, what about, uh, I'm kind of interested to know, uh, what about the Goblin Man? How did you portray that? I mean, did you pick just boys or a mix of everything? Uh, how did you portray them physically? Or what did okay. you decide about that? Yeah, um, the Goblin Ensemble, well, um, was mixed. So we had boys and girls, and we had a couple of boys who effectively sang, uh, who effectively were kind of like Goblin King kind of characters and who sang a couple of the big songs and who were sort of like the leaders of the of the Goblin Ensemble, if you like. Um, but, you know, what was very important to me working with a company, working with a young company was that everyone in the ensemble felt like they had their own individual identity, their own individual part. I think this is hugely important. You know, they were not just the chorus. And we did a lot of work so that they developed each their own physicality, their own name. Um, they that We worked with what different elements are informing them. So we did lots of work on kind of are you principally fiery, watery, earthy, airy, where's the center of gravity in your body, what part of your body leads you, all of these kinds of things which are part of a repertoire of physical theater training. And um, uh, and so it meant that they were, they were all kind of each unique and yet working together very, very closely. So they were, they were girls as well as um, uh, boys in that and there was much more of a sense of the kind of animality informing them. So each of them was, each of them had an animal and they did a bit of animal study about what, what is driving them. And some of them, you know, were cheetahs and one was a monkey and, you know, they were, they were, they were informed by different kinds of things. So it was a very much, um, it wasn't to do with them being boys and girls. It was much more to do with, yeah. Are you, are you led by fire? What's your animal impulse? These kinds of things that, that made it a very um, eclectic ensemble of individual parts, but who then became this very, very strong company together. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, that was <laughs> fascinating. So thank you very much, Carl, uh, for your um, conversation, for telling us uh, lots and lots about this uh, yeah, fascinating adaptation. So personally, it's been a pleasure <laughs> to to have you here today uh, so thank you very much and without further ado so um we're going to wrap it up um okay. unless you, there's anything else you want to add of course you're free to do so but thank you very much again Kath, um for for accepting our invitation for being with here uh, as, uh with us here today and so um, if you would like to find out more information and about the Paraphylites and the Paraphylite Society, please uh, visit our website and consider subscribing to, uh, to our journal. Again, thank you very much uh, to all uh, our listeners uh, for listening to, to tuning in for our podcast today. And of course, thank you very much, Kath Berlinson, for being here with us today. Um, and yeah, taking us through this um wonderful adaptation on Goblin Market, which I 
I would love to have a time machine now to go back then and see the original production because <laughs> I don't know. Well, we don't know. I know. If... And the sad thing is, you know, at that time, even 2000, even when we were in Edinburgh in 2005, you know, there is the worst video, which was basically shot, which mostly seems to show the backs of people's jackets. Mm. Um, <laughs> and it's such a shame that we don't. But we do have the music. So and we do have the photographs. Okay, that's amazing. So thank you very much again. Thank you, Esther.